they're cracking down on cryptocurrency so that they can usher in central bank digital currency. So central bank digital currency really is, is it's digital money that's programmable, that can be monitored by the government and can be censored by the government. In this episode, I sit down with Aaron Day, a serial entrepreneur and author of The Final Countdown, Crypto, Gold, Silver, and the People's Last Stand Against Tyranny by Central Bank Digital Currencies. I see Central Bank Digital Currency as the single biggest threat to human liberty. Aaron Day is a 2024 presidential candidate running on a platform of ending fiat currency, which he says is the only way to stop America from moving into a centralized, technocratic, one-world system. Between now and the next election, there are going to be another 40 million surveillance cameras installed. Our pictures are taken 75 times a day. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Aaron Day, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. So you are someone that has been pointed out to me by a number of people as one of the most knowledgeable people on CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. It's this catchphrase that you hear all over the place, but it's actually not really clear what it is. It's not just another type of currency, that's for sure. Before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about your journey to becoming a kind of expert on CDV, CBDCs. Uh, I've actually been a serial entrepreneur. I actually dropped out of Duke University when I was 19 and started my first company, an e-commerce company, right around the time Amazon was started. So I recruited six of my former high school classmates to drop out with me or more like convince their parents. And um, so really always had a passion for entrepreneurship. Sold that company and then got involved in investing and then started another company in 2004 focused on the healthcare sector. I actually focused on solving the number one health problem in America, which is obesity. And the interesting thing about this model is it was a very simple business. We used financial incentives to reward employees for either losing weight if they were overweight or maintaining a healthy weight if they were at a healthy weight. And we used team incentives as well, so you could have healthy weight and overweight employees working together. The program was incredibly successful. We had clients in 43 states. We were signing Fortune 500 companies, and, and companies were seeing a real return in investment in terms of a reduction in healthcare costs and an increase in productivity. The company was destroyed by the federal government in three different ways. The first was Obamacare. Obamacare came in and said, you can't use health plan dollars to reward people for actual measured success. So they basically came in and said, you can only offer participation trophies for people. You can reward people only for trying to lose weight, not for actually losing weight. So that, in essence, destroyed our business model because the entire point of the business model was to improve health and reduce cost. And that obviously re removed the entire well, and, and it was an incentive structure. You would reward success. And the rewards were cumulative. So we rewarded people. The, the issue with weight loss is it's not about losing weight up front. It's about losing weight and keeping it off. So the more you would lose and the longer you would keep it off over time, you would earn more rewards. So that this was more of a longer-term program where you know, people would be involved for three, four, five years because that's where you're going to see the health improvements and the health care savings. So, but as to the incentives themselves, we would reward people either using debit cards that could be reloaded every quarter, checks that would be mailed 
or points that could be redeemed for merchandise. Um, because of Dodd-Frank, the bank we were working with could no longer afford to be in the debit card business, and so they had to cancel us under kind of emergency terms. So we had tens of thousands of people across the country that had been engaged in the program for years that could no longer receive additional funding on debit cards. We had a check vendor that had been in business for 30 years, actually, out of Connecticut, working with thousands of clients. Attorney General Eric Holder came in and said, well, we think one of the customers, or a handful of the customers, that this check writing service was using was involved in offshore gaming. So they seized the funds of all of the customers. So we were bouncing checks to nurses all over the country. And we were presumed guilty because our check writing service vendor had allegedly been involved with providing check writing services for offshore gaming. So long story short, those three things, Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, and the Attorney General, destroyed my profitable business that was having an impact in the healthcare arena. That got me heavily involved in liberty activism and trying to understand you know, why would the government do such a thing? I mean, I was already a small government kind of person to begin with. I mean, obviously, if you're starting a company at 19, you probably already have. It was influenced by Rand and, and libertarian philosophy early on. But I got involved with a number of liberty organizations. At one point, I was the chair or CEO of five different organizations at the same time. So I moved to New Hampshire as part of the Free State Project, a, a group that's mission is to get 20,000 people to move to New Hampshire and make New Hampshire kind of the concentrated place for liberty. Galt's Gulch, right? It's Galt's Gulch in a way. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and in, in the state, we're not like we're taking over the state. The state motto is already live free or die. I guess we're just kind of uh, insurance policy for people moving from Massachusetts into New Hampshire to, you know, we're kind of there bringing in people to buffer that. Um, I got involved in a number of political organizations. Republican Liberty Caucus. I started uh, a super PAC called Stark 360. I was running a group called the Atlas Society, a nonprofit. So really just focusing on limiting government and promoting libertarian philosophy, all while trying to pursue this kind of Obamacare thing. What was this all about? Ended up trying to stop Obamacare, Medicaid expansion in New Hampshire, which we could talk for a full hour on that. I, I won't go into that, but that led me into running for United States Senate. Um, as an independent. And in all of this process, when I got involved with the Free State Project, I was introduced to cryptocurrency in 2012. So I got my first Bitcoin in 2012. And in fact, in the state of New Hampshire, New Hampshire has been on the cutting edge of cryptocurrency adoption for a long time. There are restaurants and shops in New Hampshire that have accepted Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies directly for, for over a decade. So this is something that's just part of this kind of liberty, liberty movement. I decided to get out of politics um, in 2018 after kind of beating my head up against the wall. The fundamental issue is I think there's a belief, maybe even at the state level, that you can do things from the bottom up at a grassroots level. But it turns out everything is top down. And there's a huge influence even at the state level from, from the federal government and beyond. So I exited politics and went 100% into crypto, basically moved everything into crypto, gold and silver, but predominantly <clears throat> crypto, seeing crypto as the opportunity to separate, you know, move, separate money and state. And then there are other things that you can do with crypto, the underlying technology to improve capital markets and supply chains. And so you know, my focus was on how you could apply this new technology. And, and that was it. I was out of politics, out of activism. Then COVID hit in 2020. And we saw the complete erosion of, of rights. I remember going to my, uh, my daughter's ballet in February in New Hampshire, outside. They had to have a ballet outside. All of the dancers had to wear masks. All of the parents had to bring their own lawn chairs and socially distance. And you know, I wanted to understand, well, what, what was causing that? What was motivating that? But then I also started to see a huge crackdown on cryptocurrency in a direct way that, that impacted me, having been involved in this free state movement for, for such a long time. In fact, the person who introduced me to cryptocurrency is a guy named Ian Freeman. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to a hearing for his sentencing. He is facing up to 70 years in prison for selling Bitcoin. 
That is, in essence, all he did. He sold Bitcoin either through ATMs or person-to-person -person exchanges, and he is looking at 70 years in prison. So we're going to his sentencing hearing tomorrow. Another free stater who was early in blockchain technology named Jeremy Kaufman started a company called Library. Library is a decentralized version of YouTube. It's basically a censorship-resistant version of YouTube. He was targeted by the SEC. And for five years, they went after his business and basically have, have pushed him out of business, uh, winning their case against him and draining all of his funds in the process. So I'm out of politics. I know politics doesn't work. I'm in crypto, and I'm seeing that there's a complete top-down crackdown on crypto. And I started looking at, well, why are they cracking down on crypto? Because in these examples that I gave, these are people that are promoting liberty. These are people that are promoting voluntary trade. These are people that are promoting sharing information in a way that is censorship resistant. These aren't, these aren't the bad guys. And it turns out they're cracking down on cryptocurrencies so that they can usher in central bank digital currencies. So in my process of living in crypto, it caused me to kind of research, well, what's going on with, with central bank digital currency? And that's, and that's how I got into this topic. Just explain to me what that, what is a central bank digital currency? Sure. I mean, there's the, the propaganda version they'll give you is that it's a form of digital money that you can use where there's no cash and it's really convenient, it's really cheap, and it's really easy. What central bank digital currency really is, is it's digital money that's programmable, that can be monitored by the government and can be censored by the government. So in other words, this is something where now imagine a society where you no longer have cash and literally every exchange that you do is monitored by the government. If you've ever had a health savings account, you know, health savings accounts are usually, you know, debit cards that you can use only to buy certain healthcare related items that are already on a list. Well, imagine if all of money works like this. So the government decides even what you can buy. So you can only use your programmable money to buy things that the government decides that they want you to buy. I'm aware of a system that's functioning for millions of people that works exactly this way. And this is, you know, the WeChat, you know, digital yuan in China. It's a CBDC, it's functioning, and it works exactly that way. For example, people can't buy a train ticket if they don't have a green light on their vaccine passport, which is, of course, all integrated, yeah. right? We've, I mean, I know of multiple individual instances of this sort of thing, and the whole system is structured like that. That's, that's just one example. Um, well, so the reason that I'm focused on CBDC, and as somebody that's a proponent of liberty and has moved to a state for liberty, I, I see central bank digital currency as the single biggest threat to human liberty, and it is the gateway to everything that you just described. It, because once your money can be controlled and censored and monitored by the government, then that is what ties into social credit systems, vaccine passports, digital IDs, and that is, in fact, the plan. This is something that's actually been worked on. We're 50 years into a plan to push for a one-world, global, technocratic form of government with this level of top-down control. A big statement here, big assertion. I'm going to get you to explain to me why you think that, okay? Just going back to, to, to CBDCs for a second, would you call something like what you just described a currency? Because a currency, I think of, you know, the, a dollar, and I can give it to you. It's anonymous. I mean, I, I, you know I gave it to you. But largely, you know, I can go, I, I, I tend to use cash myself and whenever I can, because I don't want a track, I don't want to be tracked in everything I do, even with a credit card, which is already the case, right? Yeah, it's, it's more of a control system than a currency. I mean, in no sense is it, is it actually a, a currency based on any traditional understanding of what a currency is. Because some of the things that they're programming into these central bank digital currencies include things like if you're not, if they want to stimulate the economy, then they'll tell you if you don't spend the CBDC that you have in your wallet, they'll just simply take it away. So, so you have no ownership or no actual custody of this. This is just ones and zeros on a, on a ledger somewhere that you have no control over one way or the other. We ultimately, the government will be able to decide whether you have it or not and without recourse. I mean, that's what you're suggesting. Yes. Right. I, well, the, I mean, you can see they've even put I, this idea they put into EU legislation regarding digital currency. I mean, and we saw several years back, Cyprus actually did a bail, what's called a bail-in, where the financial system was, wasn't working well, so that they just took a percentage of all of their customers' deposits.
say, hey, you're, you're helping us with a bail-in, that you weren't really giving an option. So that's in, in worked its way into the legislation, mm -hmm. into the framework of actually how CBDC works. So, but it's the ideology that pushes this, because the question you ask is, well, why are they doing this? Why are they implementing the CBDC? And it really, truly is because the viewpoint on this is that we should be living in a technocracy, which is a form of government where elites pick scientists and engineers to make the best decisions for everybody from the top down. It's not a, it's not a system that values rights. It's not a, a system that values individual rights or property rights. It's a system that says, we're going to have the smartest people telling you how you can live your life, what foods you can buy, how you should spend your money, when you should spend your money. And it's done under the guise of, we're going to perfect humanity by applying technology to humans using the best minds that we can come up with. Well, I, I, I expect, and this, this is the, the simplistic things people will say to to sell this is, of course, hey, listen, look at how much control, be. look how much fraud there is. Look how much control we'll have over that. Like, we'll be able to see that. We'll be able to prevent fraud. A very powerful tool, very attractive. Right? Well, my, my point, would that, would that be beneficial? Probably, yes. Is there is there some sort of cost-benefit analysis here to be done around CBDCs, or is, or is your position it's all cost? Well, it's all cost because because you understand that it's all part of a control system. You understand that it's at some level, the reason that they're actually doing this versus the reason that they're going to roll it out, they do this. This is part of the rollout of a technocratic system where they track everything. This is what's motivating it. Regardless of what they say when they sell the individual CBDC, if you look what's been, at what's been going on, going all the way back to 2000, they've been putting in tracking systems through the Patriot Act. Every day in America, there are 100,000 surveillance cameras installed. So between now and the next election, there are going to be another 40 million surveillance cameras installed. Our pictures are taken 75 times a day. This is in the United States. The China system tracks, they have 626 million surveillance cameras. They'll track every aspect of your day. If you cheat in a video game, you'll get punished. If you don't visit your elderly parents enough, you'll get punished. They're tracking what you're putting in your shopping cart at the store and not buying. Literally everything is tracked. And, and also, as I understand it, you know, they're using, for example, gait to personalize, like the cameras can kind of identify who you are based on your gait, based on the way you move. It's, it's, it's individualized. So this, this is a highly personalized surveillance system, even if your you know, face is covered or something like that. And this has been the intent going all the way back since 1974. The idea of being able to track, monitor, and surveil every personal level of detail. When is the moment where you, when the light bulb went off and you're like, oh wow, there is some sort of serious move towards global government here. The reason I mention this is because this isn't something that most people, I think, today accept. Most people don't, and a lot of this is new to me, just over the life. I, I will track down and figure out what, what happened. I just keep asking questions. That's what I've always done. So even going back to, okay, well, why did they implement Obamacare? How did all that work? I mean, that, so that kind of even led to this. I just keep asking, I just keep asking questions. And so part of this is, having been in cryptocurrency and knowing what an innovation that is, some of it, I mean, to be clear, most of the cryptocurrency projects are actually scams. I mean, there are only like a half a dozen projects out of 20,000 that are suitable replacements for, for money. But living that for 10 years and then seeing that basically CBDCs are the antithesis of that. Mm -hmm. So a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is decentralized. It actually allows for the invent, this invention of the separation of money and state, CBDCs are the exact opposite of that. It, it's it's a more centralized currency with complete control, complete programmability. So I just started looking at, well, who are the people that are behind this? Who's pushing CBDCs? So to start, I didn't necessarily think that this was a one world global conspiracy. In 2020, I believe there were maybe 20 countries globally that were even exploring CBDCs. And so at that point, just three years ago, nobody was implementing a CBDC. They were just saying, hey, maybe this is something we should look into. Well, aside from communist China, I'll mention, because that, that was very much it, exactly according to their plan. I just, I, I happen to know that trajectory, right? 
That's that. That's true. 2014 is when when China actually started the exploration of it. But but free countries, I think you mean, right? Free countries weren't thinking about this. No, right? free free countries weren't mm -hmm. thinking about this. So we're talking about 20 countries looking at exploring in 2020. Mm -hmm. It's now 2023. 130 countries are exploring CBDC. 20 countries will have implemented a CBDC by the end of this year, and over a billion people on this planet will be using CBDCs by the end of this year. And what's more alarming is the United States has actually conducted three pilots. So the official view that you'll hear from the chairman of the Federal Reserve is, oh, well, we don't know if we're looking at this, if we're going to be seriously pursuing this. The reality is they've conducted three pilots successfully and already have the technology needed to roll out a CBDC in the United States. That's the discrepancy that we have. So to tell me a, l a little bit more about that. That's, that's very interesting because this isn't something I'm, very, I'm aware of. There are three pilots. The first one is a pilot called Project Hamilton. And Project Hamilton is a project that was done. One thing you'll find with all three of these pilots is that the MIT Multimedia Lab was involved in it. And interestingly, the guy that was the chair when these things were all started is somebody that, that's taken money from, he's visited Epstein's Island twice. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, I know it sounds like a conspiracy theory. It's all, it's there. So, you know, this MIT group has been involved in each of these projects. Project Hamilton is what's called a retail central bank digital currency. What that simply means is this is the replacement for what we, that citizens use, consumers use on a day-to-day -day basis as cash. They did a pilot from 2020 to 2022, and this pilot was able to handle 1.7 million transactions per second. And I'll say why that's important. The current financial system, if you look at Visa, MasterCard, and now this FedNow thing, which I, I could talk about separately, the current traditional financial system can do between 50,000 and 100,000 transactions per second. Mm -hmm. The pilot, Project Hamilton, can do an order of magnitude more than the traditional financial system. And that technology is sitting on the shelf. And what they said in the conclusion was, well, we have the technical details worked out. There's still a few things they might want to tweak. But the real next step is we need to figure out the legality of how to roll this out and the marketing of how to get people to accept this. So I think it's important for people to understand if anybody is complacent or anybody says, oh, this will never happen in America or they don't have the technology yet. No, it's on the shelf. It's literally on the shelf. Project Cedar was a what's called a wholesale CBDC pilot. And this is basically a CBDC that's used for banks to communicate with one another for larger transaction volumes and to do transactions across the border. That pilot was, was concluded. And then there's this other one that's even more dystopian, which was why they gave it a bland name. It's called the Regulated Liability Network. And the idea behind this is to basically create one ledger that tracks all CBDC transactions. It's basically a way of, of consolidating and, and, and managing all transactions, whether they're CBDC or non-CBDC, mm. all digital assets. Mm -hmm. And it's taken me a while to be able to summarize. I'll give you an example of what that means and why it's important. So imagine a future where there's no more cash. The only thing that you can use to make purchases is CBDC. So you go to the Apple store, for instance, and you buy a computer. You use your CBDC, and now your computer is given a token, a digital token. That digital token is tracked on a ledger along with your CBDC purchase of that computer. If the government decides they don't like something that you've said online, or if you have a social credit score system like we have, they, 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 they have in China where you have dipped below a certain level, they can not only shut off access to your money, they can shut off access to your computer because your assets are actually assigned digital IDs. That is what is comp uh, contemplated with the regulated liability network. That is astounding. So that, but that is not existing technology. That's something that's in development as a pilot. That is in development as a pilot. And there's another one going on uh, with the Bank of International Settlements, where the Bank of Inter International Settlements is developing a competing Uber architecture to basically track and control. So we talked before about, well, what's bad about a CBDC in terms of relative to what will be presented in terms of convenience. With this regulated liability network, you'll be able to have multiple governments or third parties monitoring and tracking your behavior. So it's not even just you know, one government. You may have multiple agencies. So we, we hear a lot about smart appliances. And in fact, many of us have them, right? You, you talk to them, turn on your AC if you're not at home, 
et cetera, et cetera, right? But this is basically the CBDC is plugged seamlessly into essentially your smart appliances and, and everything else. Literally every asset can be digitized, tracked, and put into the system along with... Well, well anything that's attached to the network, because you'd have to be able to, like you said, turn it off, right? Or, right. or something like that. Right. But certainly there's a... That, Oh, there would be a record that there's something that you bought forever. So you just have this ever-increasing ledger of everything you've ever done with your CBDC, which an AI would then be scrutinizing to understand you better. Well, and the whole point of the technocracy movement was to move to a price-based system to an energy-based system. So the whole, this actually started in 1931, if you can imagine. So the, the whole concept of controlling energy and controlling all of the information about energy was actually developed in the, in the early 1930s. And so when you look at something like ESG, so all of this is just a way of saying, we're going to be able to track everything that you can do. We can track your energy expenditure. We can track everything that's connected to a smart grid. And then we can use that as kind of the focal point for for, for monitoring and controlling. A number of people have asserted that there is a kind of a quasi-religious ideology that essentially energy use is bad in general. And that, you know, the, sort of the, the climate movement, different, different, the green movement sort of masquerade this actual ideologies. We just need to reduce the energy use period around the earth. So this would create a command and control system that would allow let's say those the people that believe that took control, they would be able to use that to essentially implement their agenda whether you wanted to or not. Yes, and that's what they intend to do. And again, let's take their charitable explanation for why they're doing things. The, their view is they're helping humanity because they believe we have scarcity. So their entire model is actually built on scarcity and fear. And they be, believe because of this scarcity, the only way that humans can move forward is by managing that scarcity. And the only way you can do that is from the top down through the application of technology. I disagree with the scarcity as a concept. I think that if you have that as a belief system, then you are only going to find solutions that, that feed into your paranoia about scarcity. Whereas, on the other hand, what we don't know is much more vast than what we do know, but they're trying to enforce their ideology and their limited perception of the world on everyone else from the top down. Explain to me what elements came come together for you to believe that there is this, you know, push to world government or what evidence is there for that? In your mind. I started looking at some of these CBDC pilots. For instance, I actually talked to some people in Nigeria. So Nigeria implemented a CBDC maybe last year. And I was talking to people that were in the crypto community and they said, look, I'm in Nigeria. Nobody in Nigeria was asking for a CBDC. The people were not, put, nobody voted for this. And in fact, there was not a technical infrastructure for Nigeria to implement a CBDC. And the rollout actually hasn't been that successful. But he asked me, well, where did this come from? Well, I mean, I looked up where it came from. The IMF and the World Bank were responsible for promoting, designing, and pushing a CBDC on Nigeria. And that has been the case for a lot of the countries that you see piloting this. So then you start looking at, well, OK, who are these organizations? What, what is the IMF about? What is the World Bank about? These are two organizations that were formed after World War II as part of kind of the reconstruction effort. You have U the UN, which I think is a big focal point for a lot of this. When you look at the UN Agenda 2030, they have 17 sustainable development goals. And these 17 sustainable development goals cover pretty much every aspect of human behavior. Where you will live, what, you know, what your job will be, how you deal with equality, how you deal with even things like diversity and inclusion, all of that is a UN sustainable development goal. The regulation of the land, the air, and the sea, these are all part of this. So if you take those 17 sustainable development goals and you said, well, if I were going to implement a social credit system, what would I track, what would I monitor based on those goals, and what types of behavior would I reward and punish based on those goals. And when you go through that intellectual exercise, what comes out the other end is something that looks a lot like what China has built. So this is the evolution of my research on this. Because the liberty community will say, a lot of people where, you know, where I'm from, they'll say, well, yeah, but they're incompetent. They'll fail. I mean, we've seen people at the UN. They're not going to be able to implement this. And are they the ones driving the strategy? 
They're not driving the strategy. It turns out there are, there are elites behind the scenes using the UN, the WEF, the World Bank, the IMF, and the Bank of International Settlements to implement their agenda. So they're essentially pushing agenda, their agenda, which is a technocratic agenda, and getting us to pay for it through these international organizations that are funded with taxpayer dollars. Specifically, what I found was this technocracy movement really took off in 1973. 1973 is a pivotal year. The Trilateral Commission was formed in 1973. This was David Rockefeller and, and Brzezinski. And Brzezinski is really, I can't pronounce his first name, so I'm just going to go. Zbigniew. Zbigniew, okay, you, there you go. Fine. Fine. Um, he literally wrote a book about technocracy and was the kind of the intellectual force of the day for promoting globalism and technocracy. And the Trilateral Commission literally drafted the, what is called the New International Economic Order which was adopted by the United Nations in 1974. So again, the United Nations, they weren't sitting around a table and saying, hey, we're gonna, we came up with this new international economic order. The Trilateral Commission, which is a group of elites, roughly 300 to 350 people, but it wasn't that at the time, but driven by Brzezinski and others, that developed a platform called the New International Economic Order, which was adopted by the UN. And this idea promoted globalism it promoted the idea of international corporations and banks and the erosion of sovereignty over time through trade deals. That new international economic order is the basis for the UN Agenda 2030 and the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. This is a direct path. And so then as you start, you start learning that there are a few groups behind the scenes. There is the Trilateral Commission. There's the Council on Foreign Relations. There's a group called the Club of Rome, which, which is a huge group that promotes this scarcity concept regarding environmentalism. And then there's the Bilderberg Group. And, is, and while they don't publish their full lists, you can collect and start to research some of, some of the overlap. And there are some people like Kissinger and Rockefeller who have been associated with and on the boards of all four of these organizations over time. Members of the Trilateral Commission include the CEO of BlackRock, the CEO, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, the former chair of BAE Systems. So these are the people that are developing the strategy and then they're pushing it through these global organizations for implementation. But it's always been, for 50 years, an explicit push towards one global government, an explicit push for tracking and recording information about people. This is baked into it. And I, you know, I don't have the quotes on me, but they all say this themselves. This is what's driving it. And at the end of it, what you have is a situation where you have multinational corporate elites driving how all of our decisions and lives function from the top down through the application of technology. Well, I think after what we saw over the last three and a half years, it's a lot less difficult, at least for some people, to accept what you're saying, because we did see unprecedented coordination around, well, in this case, really bad policy um, again and again um, across the world. I mean, it was, it was a bizarre thing to see and comprehend how that is actually happening, right? It's easier for people to accept, but I still think that there's a lot of, I think it's been written off as, for instance, it's just greed or a few bad apples. I think that the, the place people need to go next is to understand that is a deliberate, coordinated, sustained strategy that has been implemented, that has, has been rolled out over 50 years. And if you want to talk about the magnitude of this, just those five organizations I talked about, UN, IMF, WEF, et cetera, they employ 65,000 people and have an annual budget of $35 billion. The top 10 WEF partner companies have a combined market cap of $8.8 .8 trillion. They employ 6 million people, and they have $1.5 trillion worth of cash on hand. And in, in some of these cases, with these global groups funded by our own tax dollars, this is something that we, we need to start taking seriously. And I am sounding alarm bells because Brzezinski was talking about how we need to have records on everybody in 1974. But we didn't have the technology for that. We now have the technology for that. And the gateway to this digital tyranny is central bank digital currency because it will be hard for us to protest. It will be hard for us to resist if 
they can shut off access to our money. You're expecting this is going to be pushed hard in the not too distant future. When I started writing my book, I, I didn't have the, the person who introduced me uh, to Bitcoin convicted and looking at 70 years in prison. My other friend who started Library, he, his company hadn't been shut down by the SEC. What's happened in just the few short months after I've, since I've written the book is, is breathtaking. I originally thought we had one to three years. CBDC, there's a high probability will be rolled out in the United States before the next presidential election. And I say that because the technology exists, as I've described. Biden has issued an executive order, 14067, authorizing the government to explore CBDC and authorizing the government to explore the regulation of digital assets, which is why we are getting this complete and total crackdown. So the intent has been expressed in the technologies there. And based on what we saw with COVID, I mean, I think we're one emergency away from this being something that could be rolled out. Okay. So... Let, let, let's assume that your, your premises are correct. What can everyday people do in this situation? Well, I mean, what I've been proposing, and this is controversial, but what I propose is that people actually exit the dollar. And this is going to take a little bit of, of explanation. But exchange your dollars for either self-custody crypto, gold, or silver. I mean, I don't want to make this just about crypto. The general concept here is have an alternative form of currency that you have in your own possession that you can use to engage in voluntary trade with other people so that you don't get stuck in a position where your only choice is this censorable, programmable form of money. And now you find yourself in a situation where the next time they try to push a vaccine mandate, you, you have no choice. But what about cash? Cash doesn't work because they'll ban cash. I mean, again, they will just come in and outright ban cash. Now, people, there might be a market for people to continue to use these paper notes. But frankly, those, there's counterfeitability and there's some issues with fiat currency. This is the hardest part of this for, for me to explain. In fact, I actually believe if only 3% of people exchange their, their fiat dollars for these alternatives, that would actually kind of grind the existing system to a halt. And that sounds ridiculous. I mean, you're probably saying, what, 3%? But every fiat currency in human history has failed. It has a 0% success rate. This guy wrote a book called Dollar Days where he analyzed 750 fiat currencies. The average government-backed currency only lasts 27 years, and it has a 0% success rate. And then people will say, yeah, but this is different. This is the dollar. We're the you know, greatest country in the world, and we're the largest economy, and all of this other stuff. And then I have to walk through this process to say, yes, we have been the global reserve currency for 103 years. Everybody that's watching this, the dollar has been the global reserve currency their entire lives. But the average global reserve currency only lasts 94 years if you go back and look at the five previous global reserve currencies. So before the dollar, we had the British pound, and then we had Dutch currency, French. So, so now let's look at the dollar itself. The dollar used to be backed by gold. 52 years ago, Nixon got us off the gold standard. And we've seen inflation and a whole variety of things since then. But it gets worse. In 1992, banks were required to hold 10% of customer reserves in order to be able to meet withdrawal requests. Because of COVID, there are no longer any reserve requirements for banks. Think about this for a second. In fact, this is actually true. I've experienced this watching people on social media. If you want to take out, depending upon your bank, $10,000, $15,000 worth of cash, you may need to schedule an appointment three days in advance because they actually literally don't have the cash. They don't have the physical cash, but on top of that, they don't have a lot of reserves. Okay, so now it's not backed by gold. We have no re requirements for reserves. So, so how are banks able to satisfy requests if people come in to take money out? Well, they're counting on their customers making their interest payments and principal payments on loans that they've made. Well, what are their loans? Commercial real estate, which is in a state of free fall. Residential real estate, which is in a state of free fall. Student debt, which now starting in October will have to be repaid again. So everything that the bank is counting on for money coming in to be able to satisfy customer withdrawals is in a state of freefall. And in fact, right now, 61% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and that's before the $1.75 trillion owed in student loans start coming due again. 
Okay, so you just stated three things, commercial real estate, residential real estate, and free fall, and the student loan question. So commercial real estate is definitely on, you know, underpriced uh, compared to before, and that's a big deal. How, uh, residential housing, is it really in free fall, and the student debt? Well, I, mean, I, I, yeah. I think re residential real estate is, is definitely moving into that direction again already, because again, if 61% of people are, are living paycheck to paycheck, you're going to start to see that impact the mortgage, residential mortgages as well. And that has already started to pick up in, in certain regions. And the student loan situation, I'm, already I saw a stat that 45% of, of, of people believe they're going to default on student loans once immediately once they, they become due again. Because again, they're already living paycheck to paycheck. They've had this pause, and now all of a sudden they have this increased financial liability. But, but wait a second. So you're saying you're expecting there's going to be a financial crisis, and then you're suggesting that people make it worse? <laughs> well, I, well, I'm, suggest, I'm suggesting that there is a financial crisis. Mm. This isn't a utopian solution. I'm not actually suggesting, hey, if you do this, it'll, this will be great. And I have to point this out. I've been living off of crypto since 2019 solely. This is, and by the way, it's not easy. It's incredibly inconvenient to do this. I'm doing this because I, everything that I'm saying to you today, everything that I wrote about in my book, I believe. So that, that I'm, I'm actually, living yeah. I'm, I'm living it. Mm. But it's not convenient. And by the way, by people doing this, it's not going to make your life better. If you think that, oh, if I do this, then all of a sudden I'm, I'm going to make all kinds of money and this is going to turn out great. What we're fighting against here is complete global tyranny. That's actually very interesting because you're kind of suggesting like it's somewhat deliberate, the, the sort of the collapsing of the system is deliberate because this will be the this will be the solution that, frankly, you kind of have to accept if you want to keep living. Yes. Right? Because, again, once you study the technocracy movement and what it is that they're trying to do, this ends up at the end with the elites making decisions from the top down and large multinational corporations doing this. So when you see the bank failures that went on earlier this year, what are we seeing? We're seeing the consolidation of even bank deposits into companies like J.P. Morgan Chase and the largest banks, which are likely the owners of the Federal Reserve, and they also happen to coincidentally be WEF partner companies and people that are associated with and on the board of the uh, Trilateral Commission. What about our elected officials? What, what do you want from them? I, so I've been a political activist for a long time. In fact, I, my stepmother was the uh, co-chair of the RNC and was the, the ambassador to Costa Rica under Trump. And, and I have watched politics for 30 years at all levels. And I've participated in it myself, running PACs, recruiting candidates, and being a candidate. And the, the simplest thing I could say is, I don't think voting works. I think boycotts work. I think we are at a point right now where I don't care what a politician says. Um, because there's no ability to actually execute on whatever it is that you're saying. And I mean, let's go back. Everything from read my lips to there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq to you can keep your doctor with Obamacare to we're going to drain the swamp, make America great, to we're going to build back better. None of it has come to fruition. And in part, it's because we have reached this point where even if you get elected, you're going to have a uniparty in Congress. You're going to have a deep state that is permanent, that you can't navigate around. We have politicized courts, all of this in a context of $33 trillion worth of debt and $160 trillion of unfunded liabilities with World War III breaking out on two fronts. What could somebody do if they got elected, because they're not likely to have a mandate, knowing that two years later they're going to be midterms and they're going to be neutered? I'm, right. running, for, I'm running for president to bring awareness to this issue. I haven't had issues getting coverage for political activism in the past. I've actually been running since February, and no one wants to touch this, this concept of, because I've been promoting this idea of exiting fiat. I have this thing called the Bank Run Manifesto on, my, on Twitter, which has 1.25 million views now and growing all organically. And no one wants to cover and discuss this because it goes right to the heart of what the actual issue is. So you describe a situation where you believe there's not a lot of options. That's a bit different for me. I believe we have to do everything we can using the existing structures. That would be more my position, right? But there's a kind of inherent, almost nihilism to it. It's like we're gonna, we have to, it's like help participate in pulling the, the bottom out from a system that's obviously in big trouble. Like I think everybody agrees on that part, 
right? I think that might be why some people don't. Uh, it, it, and it's hard. It, and, 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 right. and this is coming from the guy who ran these political organizations, who I, I had people living in my house. I bought a digital printing press. I believed what you're saying right now for 15 years. I got involved with the Tea Party in 2008. I mean, I, I have lived this and pushed this strategy and seen this strategy. And I guess part of what I'm trying to, to say to this is having seen this through my stepmother for 30 years and then experienced it myself directly for 15 years, I believe I've exhausted that. I've seen about as much, and I don't think most people are, are aware of how, how this works. And in fact, let me explain. I'm going to tell you who's going to win the next election, and then I'll explain why. And we'll see if this turns out to be correct. The Democrat is going to win regardless of who it is. You know, there's also this statement that you can indict a ham sandwich. The Democrats can elect a ham sandwich. Why? Because voting all comes down to getting out the vote. In 2008, the Democrats built a system based on technology for targeting voters and getting people to the polling places. And it was vastly superior to anything that the Republicans had. Trump was an outlier in 2016 because he had his own brand and his own following that was enough to overcome the difference between the get out the vote structure between the two parties. But with that not being in the race, it doesn't matter who the candidate is. And yeah, this probably does sound nihilistic, but again, find the flaw in what I'm saying. Two thirds of Americans can't identify the three branches of government. Only 20% of eighth graders are proficient in, in uh, civics and 13% in U.S. history. Their vote counts as much as yours or mine. And in fact, on voting day, the majority of people who vote are low and no information voters. So you'll have a situation through targeting where the Dems will go literally to a nursing home with a flyer that says, unless you vote for ham sandwich, you're going to get kicked out of this nursing home and you're going to starve on the street. And by the way, here's a van, let's go to the polling place, right? This is how the mechanics works on the ground for, for get out the vote. And so this is why when you're in a system where you have this level of a lack of civic engagement and civic knowledge, then what can we possibly expect the outcome to be? I don't think I'm pessimistic at all. I, I, I actually, I believe in, in, in free will I believe in love over fear. I believe in abundance over scarcity. Um, and, and I believe that this is something that's possible. So what I'm saying is we don't need a turnaround specialist. We need an entrepreneurial mindset. We need America 2.0 from first principles. We need to be talking about how to make sure that what happened, because I love America, I love the revolutionary period, I love the founding, but but we, we, we fail. At some point, we're going to have to admit we screwed this up. Now, once you know that for 50 years, there has been this insidious movement that has been infiltrating not just the United States government, but other governments. When I go back to this trilateral commission, the trilateral commission essentially recruited Carter to be president. And when you research this, every single member of Carter's cabinet was a trilateral commission member, except one. The Trilateral Commission has infiltrated both political parties and the cabinets and at the highest level of government in the United States. And when you start examining what they've done in Europe and Asia, they've done it that way well as well. So we have had this infection from within, but we are at that point right now where voting to me is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We are at that point where it is about radical noncompliance, and civil disobedience. But at the end, we can get to a place where we have free will, love, abundance, and decentralization. But it's not, not going to be voting. Well, you know, something you said really resonated with me, which was America 2.0 from first principles. And that's something I hope that a lot of people could get behind. Um, a final thought as you finish up? America is not going to remain the way that it is right now. The default situation is that we move into global tyranny in this one world form of government based on fear, centralization, and complete authoritarian control. And the basis for that is central bank digital currency. Once central bank digital currency is implemented, 
than all of the social credit systems, vaccine passports, and everything that basically limits our ability to even protest or change America 1.0 will be lost forever. Is there a way to sort of embed a te te technologically into C uh, this central bank digital currency that would prevent the ability to, because you're talking about a complete erosion of you know, the First Amendment of, you know, a, 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 all the way down the line, right? Like the disappearance of these things, if that type of control exists and can be exercised. Uh, exer I guess part of what I is, hasn't that already happened? I mean, I remember in 2020, I put out a series of videos in March at the very beginning of the pandemic. And the whole purpose of the videos was to explain to people decentralized technologies that they could use instead of Facebook, Twitter. So I did one on how you can use Signal, how you can use something called Twitch instead of Twitter. Mm -hmm. All of these alternatives, because I saw in March of 2020, they're not going to let us talk to our own friends and our own families about whatever is coming up with the pandemic, which I didn't know what all that was going to be. I had Facebook pages that had a combined 100,000 subscribers. They limited my speech to 40 viewers per video. They cut that off at the very beginning of 20. So do we even have free speech? Do we really think we have free speech now? When you start looking at what technocracy is all about, in the end, they, this movement has been to give more power to multinational corporations. Well, I can tell you personally, Twitter, from my own experience, is Twitter shadow banning people? Do they have algorithms that determine what content goes viral and what doesn't on all of the social media platforms, the power isn't even necessarily with the government. The power is already with the multinational corporations. And in fact, I mean, if you look at the evolution of this, probably the scariest thing is if you start playing with these different AI systems like OpenAI or Anthropic has something called Claude, whoever is controlling the mechanism that filters responses, that is a complete restriction and filtering of free speech right now. And it doesn't require any government. They've designed whatever their own viewpoint is, and they've already put that filter on what information you can get out of these systems. It's frightening, but, but I, the videos that I did in 2020, I actually talked about why we need decentralized alternatives. I think it's something like, or in the early days of Facebook, 40% of your followers would see a post. Now it's down to 1% of your followers. You can't even communicate with your own friends and your own social network. And in some cases, even if, like with Twitter, if somebody says, I want, I turn on all my notifications, they're still not getting all of your stuff. So they've already restricted our ability to speak with and communicate on a reliable basis with our own personal social networks. I can't disagree with you. So. You know, I, and I think a push to decentralization makes a lot of sense. So um, perhaps this is where we should leave off. Aaron Day, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you for having me.